0: So I first met Roger when I was in seminary. I was teaching a class at our local church, um, one of those nerdy Bible classes, and he and his wife showed up, and um, it was immediately apparent that these are church people, like church people. They dressed like church people, looked like church people, sounded like church. They knew all the right language. They'd spent their entire lives in church. Their kids went to a private Christian school. They loved nerdy Bible classes like the ones that I would teach. So um, over the next couple of years, as you might imagine, we became friends. Um, uh, I got to know their family. We would eat meals together, uh, see them every week. My wife started working at the school where their kids went. So even had one of the kids in class. And then somewhere along the way, um, we noticed that something was off, though. We had gone out for dinner with them, and then we were actually at their house and I don't know if I can put it into words. Like there was no like flagrant sin or no cursing. These are church people, but the way he was talking to her and she was talking to him, the way they were interacting, something was off enough that I um, I felt like something. Like I I need to something. I need to talk to Roger. So I reach out to him, and then later that week we we met at our favorite Starbucks. We'd met there many times before, and. I sit down and I'm like, hey, what's going on? Like something something is clearly happening between you two or in you. What What's going on right now? Like this is not normal. And um, and it was like I just pushed the smallest push and everything just spilled out. So for the next 30, 40 minutes, he went on and on. And, he, and it was things like, well, I... I got a great job. I, In fact, I just got a promotion. People would die to have my job, but it just asked more and more of me. And our house, it's a great house. It's actually our dream neighborhood where we always wanted to live, but it's so expensive and there's so much to keep up with. And our kids, we love the school. We would never put them in a public school, but it asks so much of them. And then our kids are involved in so many things. Like, have you seen how good my daughter is in gymnastics? Like, so we're doing this five Nights a week and and on and on and on about all the things happening in their life. and, And all the things, all the good things in his life were somehow ruining his life. To the point he was like, no matter how many vacations I go on, no matter how many glasses of wine I drink, I can't shut it off. And so I, I sat there, and I was young at the time, just a kid. I didn't know what to say to him. Like, what was I supposed to tell him? I mean, he, his family, he, his life was the envy of everyone around him. He had this perfect family and this perfect house and this ideal job and every people literally wanted to be him everything in his life was good he had this good job this good house this kids went to the good school and his kids looked perfect and they went to a good church and they were busy with all these good things and he knew that he should be grateful and happy because he had this good good life but for some reason he wasn't he was anxious and angry and could no longer feel or experience God. He felt trapped in his own decisions. He felt like a victim of his own life, like he couldn't get out of it. And he'd been going to church like his whole life. He knew the Bible through and through, like he knew all the right answers. But for some reason at that moment, none of that seemed to make any difference. And so then about a month after that conversation, they stopped attending our church And then a few months later, I heard that they were going through a divorce. And then a year or two later, I knew the results that their family just exploded. I mean,
1: exploded.
0: And all those good things were gone. I guess what so disturbs me about all this is is not that a good church person could completely fall apart although that does disturb me a little bit. What so disturbs me is that I can feel the same thing at work in me. Is that I've heard the same thing at work in almost every one of you. So for the past two years, we as a church have been asking, probing, praying about like how do we busy suburban people become a church where life transformation is normal? Like, how do we press into the way of Jesus so that all the things that he promised, that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self, that life that is truly life, that, that's normal for us. We are people who, we're not there yet, but we're pressing into that. How does that, how do we experience that in our world, and our busy lives? And it's a bit uncomfortable to admit, but I'm not sure church has always helped. Now, let me be clear to say, I believe in church. You should be here. Church is what God is up to in our world. I believe in church, but I'm also painfully aware of how church activities can too easily just become another good thing to entrap you, drag you under, ruin you. Now, of course, anyone who's paused to really think about this knows that the real issue isn't busy church activities. It's not our busy world, although those are real problems but the real issue is is our busy busy hearts and another glass of wine another vacation another sermon another church activity probably won't address that issue so as as we our church leadership have prayed and processed this together one theme keeps surfacing again and again and again, like you can't hold it under. It just pops up again and again. It's so simple that you might overlook it, but I really think it is a profound truth that we need to hear is that we as a church need to learn, or maybe better put, just we need to relearn how to be with God. To say it a little more starkly, the thing that we as a church most need is probably not another program or a new hire or the next construction project, though the Lord knows we need all of those things. I'm I'm not saying we don't, but that's not the most important thing. What we most need, what is first and most essential is to cultivate an awareness that God is with us so that we can learn to be with him. So if you're new to new story, I realize that this might sound ridiculous. Like, are you saying that just being with God is more important than like feeding the hungry or solving homelessness or the war in Ukraine? Are you saying that being with God will somehow make my life better, like take away my anxiety and heal my family? Are you saying that? And yes and no. I'm really saying something a little more radical than that. I'm suggesting that if you and I could learn to live in an awareness of God's presence, the promise isn't that he'll make your life better. The promise is that he'll give you a new life. The the promise isn't that he'll make our world a little bit better. He'll improve it. It's he'll give us a new heavens and new earth. The the promise isn't that he'll make you 10% happier and optimize you. It's that he'll take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh that he'll give you a new heart, a new life, a new story. So this Sunday, I'm going to introduce to you something that is not new in any way, shape, or form. It's called the practice of the presence of God. It's not new. It's ancient. You've probably already experienced it, even if you don't know it by that name. It's the practice of intentionally cultivating an awareness of God's presence in your life. That's it intentionally cultivating an awareness of God's presence in your life. And it's more like a posture or an openness or an awareness than like a thing that you do. You can't control this. You can't like make this happen. You can't will this to happen. It's more like falling asleep. Like the harder you think about it or try to do it, the 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 more it escapes you, you know, you got to give yourself to it. You got to let, let yourself down. So That's what we're going to talk about today, and that's what we, the leadership of New Story, want to make the focus, our practice, our key practice for this entire fall. In fact, you're going to hear this theme again and again and again. Now, I'm tempted this morning, seriously tempted, Spend the entire morning just telling you why this is so important, why this is the thing that will transform your life, why this is core to our vision and core to your life transformation, why this is the thing that would change the trajectory of Roger's life and my life and your life if we allow it to. Theologically, this, um, this is rich. It's deep. It is full. So the link between God's presence and like salvation, soteriology, uh sanctification, re- ontology for you nerds out there, the, the connection between God's presence and reality and the way things are supposed to be is huge. It's immense. It's everywhere in the scripture and it's full of these theological, metaphysical gems worth unearthing. Unear- and, and I'm going to nod to some of that because I can't help myself. But if I just make this into a really interesting lecture, I don't think we've actually touched the topic. And um neurologically, this is utterly fascinating. Just down the road from us, a guy named Andrew Newberg, he's a UPenn neuroscientist. He's written extensively on how this practice in particular literally creates new places in your brain, new neural networks, so that a person who has developed the practice of the presence of God knows and experiences God, his presence, in a way that those who do not practice this can't. They literally don't have a place in their brain to do it. So that people who practices their brain takes a different shape than someone who doesn't, which is why if you have no idea what I'm talking about right now, I probably can't explain it to you. You have to practice it to know it. And why some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, even if you can't put it into words. I could get lost in all of this and I'm tempted to. But instead, I just want to tell you a story. So for 2,000 years, when people would ask, how do we experience life with God in the midst of our busy lives? This is the story that Jesus' followers everywhere would tell. And it's Luke chapter 10. If you want to follow along in the Bible, it's Luke chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 38. This will be very familiar to many of you. The gospel of Luke chapter 10, verse 38 begins like this. Jesus, his 12 disciples, they're they're traveling along through ancient Palestine. They come to this little village. It's Martha's house. They knock on the door and she lets them all. She doesn't just let them all in. She invites them in, drops everything, and at great personal expense, invites 13 men to eat with her. This woman is a saint. So in that day, in particular, hospitality was very expensive and highly, highly valued. Martha is a single woman, and from what we know from the text, we believe a peasant. She has nothing, and yet everything she has, she's going to pull it out to feed these 13 men. She's willing to give everything she has on the drop of a hat. Unannounced, they show up at her house, and she drops everything. Gives over, for us, what would be the equivalent of hundreds, if not thousands of dollars, to feed these thir- to care for them. She's a saint. This is selfless, coughless costly, sacrificial servanthood, and, and we should note, Martha's world is not exactly like our world. It's not a one for one, but in Martha's world, Martha is doing exactly what would be expected of a woman in her culture. So she is in the kitchen working hard so that the men can go talk about important things in the living room. That, that's exactly what would be expected in her culture. This is the most important thing that she could be doing right now. It's the right thing. This is what she should be doing at that moment. In fact, she is so sure that she's doing the exact right thing, the just thing, the righteous thing, that she can't believe her sister. She's not doing what she should be doing. She's just in there, in the living room, hanging out with the men, letting her be overwhelmed by all the work. So she says, Lord... Don't you care that my sisters left me to do the work by myself don't you care that my lazy my sister is lazy and inappropriate Don't you care that I'm so crushingly busy right now Don't you see that I need help doing all these things to serve you don't don't you want to send me help don't you see how busy my life is don't you know that my church needs staff Lord Don't you care <laughs> sorry. That was about me, wasn't it? (laughs) But it's not just that Mary is not helping in the kitchen here. If you go back and read that line before, uh, she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet. She sat at the Lord's feet. This is a technical rabbinic term that would be used to describe the relationship between a rabbi and a disciple. To sit at the feet of one's rabbi is to be a disciple, to be entrusted with the teaching of a rabbi. And this is special. So when I was um, at that church in Dallas, I taught my Bible class. And um, there was one woman who was like a super fan of mine. Yeah, hard to believe, I know. Um, her name was Karen. Huh? Um, <laughs> she thought I was the best teacher ever and who was there to disagree with her. So um, it, it was a little weird. But she would come up to me and fall over me, and it was kind of nice. But one Sunday, after a particularly good lesson, she came up, and my wife and I were standing there talking, and she just looks at my wife and says, do you go home and just sit at his feet? (laughs) To which I looked at my wife like, "Ah." oh, no, she does not. Um, (laughs) Yes, that. Sitting at the feet of your rabbi is a big deal. It says something about your relationship to the rabbi. And get this, in the first century Palestine, women were not invited to sit at the feet of a rabbi. It's not a thing. Disciples were men. Women didn't just invite themselves into that, but but get this, Mary does. Mary does. So get this. Here's the, here's the big contrast. Martha and Mary. In that culture, in that time, to anyone looking on the outside in, on the scene, Martha is clearly in the right. She's the good one. She's the godly one. She's the one who deserves praise. And and Mary is clearly in the wrong. She She's not only is she not doing what she's supposed to be doing. She's supposed to be in the kitchen. She's not doing that. Not only is she not doing what she's supposed to be doing, she's doing exactly the thing she's not supposed to be doing. She's invited herself in to sit at the feet of Jesus. No woman's supposed to be allowed to do that. She's the bad one. She's ungodly. She's lazy. She deserves shaming something. So Martha says, don't you care, Jesus. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. So grammatically, there's a double vocative, which doesn't really tell you anything. But you do find throughout the scriptures, um, this is not something you need to know. It's something you need to experience. Moses, Moses.
1: Saul, Saul.
0: Martha, Martha, when, when, when God, when Jesus stops, looks you in the eyes and says your name twice, I want you to feel that. This is not shame. It's not anger. It's Jesus saying, I see you. I know what you're going through. I understand your struggle. I'm not here to shame you but something's about to happen. (laughs) Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. Do Do you see what just happened? So Jesus shows up at her home. The very God of the universe just came to her house to be with her, to, to eat with her, to share his life with her. This should be, by all accounts, the very best day of her life. But it's not, is it? In fact, Somehow, in preparing a meal and serving Jesus and doing the best she can to follow the rules and do what she's supposed to do, she's ended up stressed, anxious, a broken relationship with her sister. She's frustrated at her and convinced that Jesus doesn't even care. She's completely missed out on the presence of God in her home. So I'm, I'm not here to throw Martha under the bus. Martha is not evil. Working hard is not bad. Um, the problem is not that Martha is in the kitchen working. The problem is much bigger than that. The problem is that Martha finds her sense of worth and righteousness in all that she's doing for the Lord, which suggests that her sister is worthless and unrighteous. The, the problem is that Martha is letting her culture define what's most important instead of letting Jesus The problem is that Martha believes that her hard work somehow makes her valuable to Jesus. And it doesn't. Jesus already values her. The the problem is that Martha assumes that Jesus doesn't care. But he does. does. So, So moving from the kitchen to the living room, that won't solve that problem. The goal is not to get Martha to stop working. The goal is to deal with her heart. The goal is that whether she's in the kitchen or in the living room, she is enjoying the presence of Jesus. That, that's the goal. It says a few things are needed. Indeed, only one. Martha, I, I know that you think you have to do all this. I know that you think, um, I know that the world tells you, you need to serve in all these ways. I know the world is telling you that being busy is good. I know that you believe you're doing the right thing and you can't possibly let any of these things drop right now, but Martha, Mary has chosen what is better. Literally, she's chosen the better portion, like the better meal. You're fixing a meal over here, but she's chosen the better meal because being with me is better than working for me. Being with me is better than working for me. So isn't it ironic that we chase all these things in life, like jobs and entertainment and houses and sports and vacations and titles and relationships and hobbies and church activities, good things, thinking that they're somehow going to give us the life we want. And so we fill our lives with them, like more and more, we chase after all these good things into our lives and our hearts are so full, so busy that we begin to ruin ourselves like we lose our gratitude. We lose our peace. We ruin our relationships. We get mad at the people we're called to love. We lose our ability to enjoy or even notice God's presence. We miss out on the better portion. So I don't want to over-explain this. This is a story that you're supposed to sit with. You're supposed to carry with you and let it serve you. I want the story to speak for itself, but I want three things. I just, let's not miss the obvious. Number one, Jesus doesn't value you because of what you do for him. Did did you hear that? He does not value you for what you do for him. He doesn't need you to do anything for him. He's the God of the universe. He values you, period, and he wants to be with you. Now, when you experience that as the first and the most essential thing, then out of that, you will do lots of things. It will call you to do lots of things, but you have to start with the fact that he doesn't value you for what you do. You do stuff because he values you. It's completely inverted. Number two, this story is like a massive slap in the face in that it just just told us that if we are not so, so careful, Jesus could show up at your house, open the door, plop down on the couch, and you would completely miss his presence. Jesus could literally come into your house, sit on the couch, and you would completely miss him. It would be yet another busy, stressful, anxious, frustrating day. Do you hear how crazy this is? Do you hear how insane this is? And number three, if you want to do what Mary did, you should expect to get what Mary got. So what did Mary do? She broke protocol. She didn't do what she was supposed to do in that culture, but she prioritized being with Jesus over everything else. So yes, she got to experience Jesus' presence there, which is awesome. That's beautiful. That's amazing. But she also got her sister really, really mad. I I just imagine how, how her neighbors would have viewed her, how the disciples would have viewed her. It meant that she was such a disappointment. Can you believe her? Can you see how lazy and selfish she is? How inappropriate. So let's not underestimate the cost of being with Jesus. Uh, She had to be willing to disappoint people. She had to be okay with people misunderstanding her. She had to let go of what others expected and wanted and felt like she should be doing. So if you prioritize being with Jesus, some people won't like it. Maybe some family members, maybe some good Christian people. They'll think you're lazy or selfish. They'll get mad at you. This is not easy. You really do have to ask yourself when you read this passage, am I willing to let go of good things that are stopping me from being with Jesus? Am I willing to drop things that I think are essential? Can I let go of trying to meet everyone's expectations for me? Do I really want to be with Jesus, even if it means other people might get mad at me or call me names or misunderstand me. Now, if you if you can't, I want you to notice Jesus is not mad at Martha. He's not shaming her. So we're all in different places, but I, I do want you to hear this. I'm pretty sure that this is not just an invite to Martha. I'm pretty sure this is included in the scripture because it's an invite to all of us. Martha, Martha, you're missing out on the best part. You don't have to keep choosing that way. You don't have to. Roger, Roger, you're missing out on the best part. I know you think you got to do all these things, but it's destroying you. You're missing out on the best part. So this theme of of God's presence being the best part, the one essential thing, the thing that is before everything else, Once you see this, you can't unsee it. Like you'll see it everywhere in scripture. So Genesis 1 and 2, what makes the Garden of Eden paradise? Well, it's not that they're naked. It's it's not like the endless pina coladas, right? It's not the perfect weather. Like people to this day, they try and recreate their own paradise, right? You can literally go to resorts called paradise where people are naked drinking endless pina coladas and there's perfect weather. And some of those people who go there are actually living in hell, because that's not, that's not what makes paradise, paradise. What makes paradise, paradise is God's there. You're with God, the God who loved you, created you. So uh, Exodus chapter three, worth pausing on the burning bush. Moses shows up and God reveals his personal name for the first time ever to people. And it's, we aren't quite sure how to pronounce it. It's generally pronounced Yahweh, but this, whatever this is, it's not a normal name. In fact, it's usually translated, I am that I am, which has massive connotations. But Hebrew scholars will be quick to point out, it could mean that, but it's it's perfectly ambiguous. In fact, it's, some think it's intentionally ambiguous. It could mean I am that I am, but it could also mean I will be with you. In fact, as he talks to Moses repeatedly, God says to Moses again and again in that very scene, I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be with you. That when God reveals who he is at his at His core nature, like if you were to know him by name, who is he? I am the God who is with you. So Isaiah chapter seven, God's people are now getting destroyed, being sent into exile. And everyone's asking like, have all the promises of God failed? Is life as we know it over? Is there any hope? And what is the answer? It's Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14. Behold, The virgin will give birth and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. That's salvation. That is hope that God is with us. In fact, that's who Jesus is. He is the God who is with us. And then before Jesus ascends into heaven, he says, hey, just because I'm leaving, it's actually, this is not the end. This is the beginning of something even better, something bigger. Because when I leave, I'm going to send you a helper, the spirit of God. That God himself is going to live with you and in you. He will be closer to you than your very breath. That is the promise. That is the hope. That is salvation that God is with us right here, right now in our lives, carrying us through closer than our breath. So the question when you read the scriptures is not is God present, but are you aware of his presence? He is present. He is here. He is now, right now, here. But are you making a place in your life and in your brain to recognize his presence? Or is your life too full, too distracted, too busy? So the practice of the presence of God is as old as the Bible in fact, you will find it as you you start looking for it, you you will realize, oh, the, the patriarchs actually practice this. You'll see it throughout the Psalms. And then you come to like the writings of the Apostle Paul and you realize his number one way of speaking of prayer is without ceasing or always. In fact, 14 times when he talks about prayer, he talks about it in a way that transcends like a, an actual conversation, but it's a way of living, a way of being in the presence of God. It's the idea that you were constantly not just talking to Jesus, but doing life with Jesus, no matter what you're doing, that there's no end to your communion with him. It just spills over into all things. In fact, in order to build this into the, like their hearts and their lives and their bodies and their relationships, the ancient Jews actually had a, a practice of having three fixed times of prayer a day, morning, noon, and night. In the book of Daniel, this um, gets some attention because Daniel, the king has ordered that No one should pray to any other gods except the king. And then we read in Daniel chapter six. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and got down on his knees and prayed just as he had done before. And you're like, Daniel, what are you doing? Like nowhere in the Old Testament will you find it commanded that you have to pray three times a day. Daniel, why would you risk your life if this is not a command, a law of God? Why would you risk your life to continue doing this? Daniel seems to think that it would be better to be thrown into the lion's den than to give up this practice. That the only way he can know that God is with him is if he continues in this practice no matter what. And this practice of praying three times a day—it seems to be—seems that the earliest Christians then carried this on. We see the same pattern borne out in the Book of Acts, and then right after the Book of Acts, there's a book, um, one of the earliest Christian documents called the Didache or Didache, which instructs how Christian living. How do you follow Jesus? And one of the instructions in there is three times a day you should pause and pray the Lord's Prayer. Later, then, in the third, fourth, fifth centuries, people who were seeking to devote their entire lives to God formed what we now look back and call monasticism. But at the time, they didn't have that word. They were just trying to give their whole lives to God. And the very foundation of how to give your whole life to God was setting aside time to be with God. In fact, Benedict, one of the early founders of monasticism, he read Psalm 19, where it says, seven times a day, I praise you. And he said, that's it. Our lives, seven times a day, we're going to stop everything and we are going to pray. We are going to be in God's presence. So to this day, if you go to... Most monasteries around the world, they still practice seven times a day, including once at like 3.30 in the morning. They get up, they all pause to pray, remember God. Now, I am not suggesting that we all become monks. We cannot go back to the world of the ancient Jews or even the earliest Christians. We can't. We live in a different time, different place, different era. But it is still true that the first thing, the most essential thing that we need to do is be with God. So we have to figure out what this looks like for us in our day, in our time. And we almost certainly need a guide. Which brings me to this guy, Brother Lawrence. So in the 17th century, this guy, Nicholas Herman, I think was his name, prior to becoming Brother Lawrence. He was, uh, he was in the army. He actually got injured when he was in the army. He was lame for the rest of his life. One of his legs didn't really work. And then he, after he got out of the army, decided to become a monk, and the abbot saw in him such great potential that he made him the cook, all right? So this guy spent most of his life in a kitchen. His career is thoroughly unremarkable. He never did or accomplished anything worth noting, anything. But along the way, this humble, busy, uneducated, practical, Martha-like man who worked all the time, bustling around in a kitchen, cultivated the heart of Mary. He started what he called practicing the presence of God, where he would habitually recognize God's presence in his life. So whether he was making an omelet, his description, or, or mopping the floor, or actually on his knees in prayer, he would stop and recognize God's presence in that moment. And he says after 10 years of intentional practice, no 10 years of intentional practice, he became, this became so natural to him experiencing the presence of God that he would describe the last 30 years of his life, he lived in an almost unbroken awareness of God's presence. People began to notice. So this unimpressive, lame, uneducated cook somehow lived a life of such deep joy and peace. He was just so different that everyone took notice. In fact, noblemen start writing him and then soldiers and then church leaders and people from all over the world start writing and seeking him advice. Like how, how, what do you have that we don't? What do you know that we don't? Why is your life so different? And then after he died, these conversations and letters were collected into a little book called The Practice of the Presence of God which is now one of the most read, most published, most loved books in the history of the world. So there's a lots more I could say about this book, but rather than tell you, I would like to just let someone else share their experience with it. So Patty, want to say, let's give Patty a warm round of applause. Yeah. <clears throat> Patty is a church leader, mom, artist, and, um, And she recently stole her husband's copy of Practice of the Presence of God. So I'm just going to let her share her reflections.
2: So it's true. My husband came home with a stack of books uh, this summer to read before he took a little sabbatical. And I said, can I have that one? (laughs) Um, So, yeah, after an extended time of practicing the presence of God and just um, sitting in his presence, God revealed that I had an unconscious lie, um, and it was that I'm not important or valued. As an adult, I can see how I came to this conclusion, and um, but I knew it wasn't true. And so I began praying a lot about it and asking the Holy Spirit to bring me to the truth. Um, after reading through Scripture, I felt the Holy Spirit tell me, that there is nothing I can do to make myself any more important. After more reflection and sitting quietly with God, I began to see how much I worked to gain my value. And this led me to ask, how much do I have to do um, to be valuable? How much is enough? And in reading the practice of the presence of God, I learned that it is not what I do, but how I do everything. And I could relate to brother Lawrence who talks about his lowly job of working in the kitchen and later fixing shoes. And I, um, I understood this as a mom, a stay at home mom and as an artist feeling like these jobs are very lowly in, um, you know, our culture's standards. And, um, Yeah, let's see. I'm going to read from one of the letters that um, Brother Lawrence's friend, um, that he had written to one of his friends. And he said, um, all that mattered is that he did it for God. He knew that the pettiness of the deed would not diminish the worth of his offering because God, needing nothing, considers in our works only the love that accompanies them. And then he also said... That is our whole purpose, brothers, to adore God and to love him without worrying about the rest. So it was kind of an aha moment for me to realize that it wasn't what I was doing, but um, that I was recognizing God's presence and um, doing what I did out of love for him. And I um, I asked God to show me some scripture verses to back this um, new idea up because it was pretty exciting for me to realize and very freeing to think about how, um, it doesn't matter what I'm doing as long as I'm recognizing God's presence and, um, doing it for love out of him, love for him. And the Holy Spirit brought me to a couple different, um, passages. One is Matthew 22, where Jesus is asked, um, what the greatest commandment is. And Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it's love your neighbor as yourself. And then the Holy Spirit also brought to mind um, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And it has a similar message. It says, without love, I am nothing. Deeds in themselves are not love. Only faith, hope, and love will remain. And the greatest virtue is love. Um, so that's pretty much all I have to say. It was pretty neat to see how Brother Lawrence from three hundred years ago um was able to give me a change in my perspective and it's been pretty radical in my life. <laughs> Thanks, Patty.
0: <laughs> what I love about Patty's story is that by just putting herself in the presence of God, he worked out these great truths in her life. He starts, well, that's the thing, right? It's a little scary to open yourself up to God because he's going to do some deep stuff, isn't he? So this fall, we as a church, we want to learn or maybe relearn how to be with God. We want to prioritize being with Jesus over doing things for Jesus. We want to prioritize being with Jesus over doing things for Jesus. We want to remember what's first and most essential. We want to choose the best portion. So this means uh, that we need to learn how to how to make a place in our hearts, in our lives, in our community, in our brains to practice the presence of God. So here's here's the invitation. This fall, I want to invite you. We want to invite you as a leadership to make a habit of setting aside time every day for God to interrupt your busy schedule so that you can be with him. Interrupt your busy schedule so you can be with him. Uh, this is not a law. This is not meant to be some extra thing that you need to do. It's in fact the opposite. Um, the goal is not to achieve something and the goal is not, please listen to me, I'm not saying this is a life hack where if you start doing this every day, suddenly you'll perform better and optimize your life. I don't care if you optimize your life. In fact, the very best thing for you might be to ruin your life, to not optimize it, to not become the best, to be a little less successful and be with Jesus. Maybe we need a new definition of success. So I'm not trying to ruin your life unless that life is a life you're creating apart from jesus then i am trying to ruin it there you go the goal of this is to recognize that jesus is already with you he, he's already with you to actually recognize that and live accordingly so by the very nature of this this means that we we have to be careful about rules or guidelines or how we structure this because you can't like conjure this or create this um uh, but let's let's just talk through some basic practical things. The first thing is this. Historically, Jews and then Christians practiced three times a day, monks seven times a day, right? So I, what I'm suggesting is wherever you're at, introduce one more time a day. So if you're used to meeting with God in the morning and recognize the presence, then add in a midday or a, a end of the day or an evening time to just add that to your day. Don't try and go to the monastic seven, you No. Know? Unless you're already at six, then you can do that. But just add one more time. If you're at zero, just add one. Just add one. Just take the next step, all right? But in this, you probably do need some practical help. So you shouldn't just trust yourself. Oh, I've made this decision. Now I'm going to do it. You actually need to set a reminder. It won't just happen on your own. You need a plan. You need to let Jesus intentionally interrupt. That's the key. It's not your normal course of the day. He's going to interrupt your day in doing this. Just as a side note, if you can get a group of friends or uh, a few people to do this with you or a small group to do this with you, it's even better, right? If you all agree to do it at the exact same time. When the reminder goes off then, very, very practically, you need to slow your heart and mind. That's the first thing you need to do. It is almost impossible to feel busy and feel the presence of Jesus. Almost impossible to feel both of those at the same time you then likely need to do something, listen to me carefully, with your body. So historically, some people kneel, some people raise their hands, some people close their eyes, some people go into a a secluded place. Um, Whatever that looks like for you, you probably need to do something with your body. Meeting God is not just an intellectual exercise you're to meet him with your whole self you're to show up in that meeting and recognize that he's there you're to offer your body as a living sacrifice and worship him with your heart mind soul and strength right there are all kinds of of reasons for this but i'm i'm i just want to when you think about this i want you to experience the father turning his face towards you i want you to experience jesus walking with you i want you to experience the spirit filling you. There are many theological and neurological reasons for this. For right now, you're just going to trust me on this one. And then the last thing I just want to suggest is that you you almost certainly, unless you're a pro at this, you probably need a guide, someone to help you through this. So we're, we're offering Brother Lawrence as a guide. We have um, about 30 copies of the book back there. You can buy it on Amazon for like five bucks, though. Don't let that be a hindrance, guys. All right. It's as a, among all the spiritual classics, books that are more than two, 300 years old, it's one of the most accessible, readable ones. And here's the goal. You would take it and you would, your alarm goes off, you slow your breathing, you pay attention to God, you open your hands, whatever that looks like for you, you read. And the chapters or conversations are one, two, three pages at most. They're really short. You only read one. And then you ask God, What do you want me to see? Where are you at? How do I experience you right now? You you respond to whatever God leads your heart to do. The whole thing could take five, 10 minutes tops. Don't overthink it, right? Now, if the book, reading a book from a 17th century monk sounds way too intimidating to you, I get it. Don't start there. We also have in your handout today a couple of apps. One is called Pray As You Go, and the other is called One Minute Pause. Both I highly recommend. My personal favorite is the One Minute Pause, it's probably the simplest, most accessible resource out there. It is a one, three, five, or 10-minute options on there where it literally just guides you through, states some scriptures over you, and leads you to basically surrender yourself to God and, and sense his awareness. That's all it does. Um, I could go into great detail, but I thought, let's end this way instead. If you would, put your feet flat on the floor. Whatever an open position is for you. Some of you might want to watch the screen. I'm going to show a video. This is the three-minute version of the one-minute pause. And I just follow the prompts, and I'm not going to explain it. Just give this time to Jesus. (laughs) Jesus.
1: Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. Jesus, I give everyone and everything to you. I give everyone and everything to you, God. What do you need to let go of? I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, heal my union with you. I love you. I believe you. I worship you. Restore our union, Lord. Heal and restore our union. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I pray for more of you, God. Fill me with more of you. I pray the river of life would fill me, restore me, renew me, surround me. I need more of you, God. Saturate me with your love. Saturate me with your life. That's good, that's enough for now.